She's been called the queen of sensation fiction and the queen of the circulating library. She was alive when Queen Victoria took the throne and lived to see Victoria's son, Albert Edward, become king. She got around in carriages, on the railways, and even owned a car. And she was one of the few Victorian authors who lived to see her own work adapted to film. I'm talking, of course, about Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Let's get to know her a bit, shall we? This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. But first, I'm joined today by a guest host who's going to help me do justice to the long and prolific life and career of Mary Elizabeth Braddon, Eleanor Dumbbell. Eleanor is a PhD student from Loughborough University in the UK, where she is working on the relationships between Victorian women writers and their male publishers and female peers, and examining the effects these have on reception of their work. She focuses on George Eliot, Francis Milton Trollope, and Francis Eleanor Trollope. Hi, Eleanor. Hi. Good to speak to you. You too. Yeah, um, so I was actually lucky enough to encounter Braddon pretty early in life. I was in um, year 11, which is the equivalent of 10th grade, and my English teacher was allowed to choose the novel that we studied. Um, and she chose Lady Audley's Secret, which was really cool, and I didn't realise quite how cool it was at the time. Um, so Braddon doesn't actually feature in my thesis, but I'm still really interested in her. Her life kind of overlaps with Francis Eleanor Trollope's in some really interesting ways. Yeah, that is so amazing. I didn't actually even hear about Braddon, I guess, until um, I started my master's degree. So do you find that Braddon is still pretty well-known in the UK these days? Um, I wouldn't necessarily use the word well-known. I think she's kind of in the mid-tier of Victorian writers, so people won't necessarily recognize her name. If you say Marilyn with Braddon, they won't know who you're talking about like they would with Dickens or Bronte. Um, but if you mention Lady's Audley's Secret, they're likely to have, you know, they'll be like, oh, I've heard of that. They've, they've heard the name before. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So she definitely fits in the category of lesser known, even on, in her home territory. Let's give her a little bit of a historical context and before we move on to talking about her actual life and work. On October 4th of 1835, Mary Elizabeth Braddon was born to Henry Braddon, a Cornish solicitor, and Fanny Braddon, formerly Fanny White, an Irish journalist. And a lot of stuff was going on in that year. So on January 30th, the first known attempt to assassinate a sitting U.S. president, Andrew Jackson, occurred. Um, on August 10th, P.T. Barnum began his career as a showman by purchasing a blind and mostly paralyzed woman named Joyce Heth. Yeah, I'll jump in because sometime in August we don't have an actual date. Um, it's all very wishy-washy. Sometime in August, somewhere on the Delaware Bay, Francis the Trollope is born. Aboard a paddle steamer, which is one of my favorite facts about her. Uh, speaking of amazing authors, we also have a big Edgar Allan Poe event. He marries his cousin Virginia on the 22nd of September, and 
on the 30th of November, Mark Twain is born. I would have thought he was older. I'm not sure why. Yeah, he's an old soul. Yeah. Also in that year, Alexis de Tocqueville publishes Democracy in America in France. A mob in Charleston, South Carolina burns abolitionist literature, and abolitionist writers are expelled from southern states. James Bowman Lindsay demonstrates a constant electric light in Dundee, Scotland. It's not well documented, but apparently he also developed an incandescent light bulb, further proof that Edison's real talent was filing patents. Uh, John Stuart Mill's maid accidentally burns the unpublished first volume manuscript of Thomas Carlyle's The French Revolution, a history. Nathaniel Hawthorne publishes Young Goodman Brown, and Hans Christian Andersen publishes Fairy Tales Told for Children. So kind of an auspicious year to be born as a writer. There's a lot happening, a lot of milestones in the literary world. Yeah, there's a lot going up. I was really surprised to, to find so much, yeah. A lot of burning. A lot of burning, yeah. Every time I hear that story about Thomas Carlyle's manuscript, I get mad. <laughs> so mad. I would, I don't know how I would handle it. Not well. Yeah, I tried to think how long he spent on that before Mills just like, yeah, doesn't it? Or Mills made even. Just leave it lying around so your maid can think it's rubbish. Yeah. So the story that Bryden tells of her birth in her memoir, Before Knowledge of Evil, is actually quite entertaining, so I thought I'd share it with you all here. She writes, I might have been born in Cornwall, of the innumerable might-have-beens in a long life, that is one which I look back upon now and then with keen regret. I feel that I ought to have been born in the dear old house where my father and mother and uncles and aunts all made their entrance into this world. Had fate been kind and hastened my arrival by a day or two, I should have entered life in that friendly shelter instead of appearing inconveniently for my mother after a stagecoach journey of two days and two nights in a house where I was not immediately expected. And I just thought this story sounded a lot like, it made her sound like a Dickens protagonist almost, or Oscar Wilde's Jack Ernest, who has, he was born from a handbag. Yeah, I, I kind of left asking, were her father and mother born in the same house? Like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, so she's claiming that, right? But how could that even be possible? They're not related, they're not cousins or anything, which is the only explanation I could think for that to be true. Yeah, and she goes back a lot. She references her mother being from Ireland a lot. So it's like, your mother wasn't born in Cornwall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's one of the many bizarre, not quite truths she tells. Mm-hmm. And I think, so I was looking, she was writing this in 1914, at the age of 79, and so I guess maybe some lapses of memory are to be expected, although by all accounts she was still very sharp, very on her writing game up to the end. Yeah, I think I kind of think part of it is the, what might have been. She's changing some of those things preemptively. Mm-hmm. And any time we're dealing with memoir, we're dealing with fiction, at least at a certain level. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting as well that she was actually born in Soho in London, so she's actually born in what's known as Theatreland in the West End. So it's kind of really fitting that she's born there. Yes, yeah. Fate, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, something really nice about that. So, kind of characteristically of a lot of the memoirs of the period, and even today, I think, um, Braddon goes on to shave two years off of her life, claiming to be born in 1837 when Queen Victoria took the throne. And aside from vanity, um, I think there might be a few reasons for claiming this. So and, uh, before I get to those reasons, I just want to read the quote where she 
lops the years off her age. So she says, I was born late at night on the 4th of October in the year of Queen Victoria's succession, so I may fairly describe myself as an early Victorian. So the immediate reason for cutting these years off of her life uh, that she sort of alludes to here is that she wants to be thought of as thoroughly Victorian. She starts when the period starts. So that's kind of cool. I can understand why um, she might want to make that move. Yeah, definitely makes sense in ways. I do think the kind of, like I was saying earlier, her father and mother being definitely not born in the same house as it might have been in the losing two years, kind of gestures towards her not being entirely married to the truth, pardon the pun. Mm-hmm. And she spent a lot of time kind of wondering about alternate timelines and thinking how things might have been different. And then just changing really small aspects of her history. So she's throughout, before Knowledge of Evil, she's saying, oh, I can't remember the street that I was born on or what it's called, so I'll call it Fourth Street. It's actually Frist Street. So she's, like, minimally changing it. And then being like, oh, I can't remember. Yeah, and that seems to be a pattern, not just in the memoir, but um, Robert Wolf, who's the the expert on her, he wrote her the defining biography. Um, he He points out that much of her fiction throughout her life sort of just takes moments from her life and slightly changes them for plot purposes. It's a lot, uh, it's a lot of autobiographical work, which maybe, I mean, there's a tendency to read women's fiction as autobiographical, especially in the late 70s and 80s in scholarship. So I think part of where he's coming from is that school of thinking. But I can see that she does she does mine her life quite frequently, which I think all writers do mine their lives for um, plot and inspiration and other things. Yeah, I definitely think it's common. Like, you have so many writing characters or whatever saying you have to write from experience. So definitely super common to think, oh, this thing, this interesting thing happened to me. Let's make it happen to my protagonist. Yeah, it lends a level of authenticity. Yeah, and like you say, I think that does get picked up more in women's fiction than in men's. Mm-hmm. So she's thinking a lot about time as she's writing uh, this memoir, and she notes that measured by my sense of time in later life, where intervals of 10 or 15 years are talked of casually as the other day, those first four years seem to me like a quarter of a century. And in fact, she spends most of this unfinished memoir dwelling on those first four years. So let's uh, dive in and talk about those years and how they set her up to be this icon that some of us remember and most of the world has forgotten. Braddon was the youngest of three children. She had an older sister named Maggie, who was 11 years her senior, and she had a brother, Edward, who was six years older than her. So at this point, her mother has gotten over the novelty of motherhood, if she ever felt it, and seemed to be content to leave most day-to-day parenting to a woman of color, who it sounds like came from the U.S. and was probably of African or Native American descent, or maybe both. Not that um, Fanny Braddon was a bad mother. In fact, her relationship with Braddon was deep and long-lasting. And as Braddon grew older, I think they grew closer and closer. But maybe she just said, you know, over the toddler thing at this point. Yeah, she's definitely more keen to play the friend role than the maternal role, isn't she? It, yeah, that's what, that's what it sounds like from Braddon's reminiscences. I also find the, uh, you know, when she's talking about um, Sarah's heritage and she's like, I can't remember what exactly she says, but she 
seems really jarring when she's like, oh, she, maybe she is um, African-American, maybe she is Native American. It's a really, really weird description. It is. And I, I had a lot of trouble with that. Uh, she's talking about her mother's attitude toward the nurse in that moment, and it's really a kind of casual racism that was really common at the time. Just to be really flippant about somebody's background and, and the experiences that brought them to a place. But we don't know we don't know anything but what they tell us or what Braddon is telling us here, so Yeah, there's something that feels really like taxonomical, I think, was my issue with it. But she's really keen to exactly define where she's from. Yes. Which is even weirder because she seems really fond of this woman. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but... Oh no, yeah, she does, and also throughout her life she demonstrates this really keen understanding of uh, individuality and, and characterization, like in her writing, but also she makes friends among the serving class and uh, actors, and I mean, she's not, she's not really classist. Yeah as much as some of her contemporaries. So it's just a, it is a, such a weird moment, yeah. Um, so this nurse that we've been talking about um, is, features frequently in her memories of this time. The nurse's name, by the way, Sarah Allen. She appears and reappears throughout the pages of the memoir. So Braddon remembers going on walks through the city with Sarah and misspending her sixpence at the Soho Bazaar time and time again. She writes, Sixpence spun out of my slowness in making a choice, lasted a long time, and generally ended in my buying the wrong thing. Like, she just had this mountain of options of what she could buy, and I'm just imagining, you know, cheap toys and the kinds of things you find at, um, in, the, in the States here at, like, a Saturday market or um, a, a farmer's market or a street fair. When you see kids going around, um, like, theme parks, or popular holiday destinations that are asking for things, and you just know they're never going to touch them. As soon as they get them home, they're just going to forget about them. They want something. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, so Braddon remembers having lots of dolls, but no friends or pets at this time in her life, aside from the adult friends she's surrounded with. Yeah, she's not got any friends who are the children, but she's really keen to point out that she's not lonely. Um, I think this is what we were saying before about kind of being more friends with her mum than having a maternal relationship. Mm-hmm. Also being really good friends with Sarah Allen. Yes. Which I think is kind of the only child's lot, from what I understand, or even the oldest child, you know, for so many years you don't have a lot of young children around, and so you, you just kind of naturally make friends with the adults around you, and um, it shapes your personality quite a lot, which I think we see later in her life. Yeah, and even though she's not an only child, her siblings are so much older than her. And Edward's off at, they're both off at school, right? She doesn't meet her sister until she's like six or seven. Right, yeah. So she's, for all intents and purposes, she's an only child. And if she sees her siblings at all during these years, it's only during the Christmas holidays. Yeah, which is such a bizarre, kind of wrap your head around. The, I think that's another bit that was jarring to me is when she's saying, oh, I met my sister. I was... I can't remember how old she is. She is six or seven. And it's such a weird sentence to read. And she, yeah, and she can't seem to relate to this sister or really um, understand what b having a sister means beyond the academic sense of the word. Like, 
there's no real underlying relationship in, in her memories as she writes them. She goes into lots of small details about, in the absence of people to describe, she really describes her atmosphere, her setting, and her daily experiences at great length. And so for one thing we learn uh, is that she absolutely hated caraway seeds, but was really um, food-oriented. Yeah, I, I so strongly relate to this girl. She um, has some feelings about caraway seeds, but her descriptions of She's talking about fruit, and it's always like, oh, whenever I saw my dad, it was really good because he had fruits and he had a peach. Um, she's really into peaches and cherries, which you can definitely relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm all about the food, too. But I also kind of wondered, just coming from a background in reading, you know, 19th century children's literature, especially uh, by U.S. authors, they're always talking about, you know, the highlight of Christmas was getting oranges in the stockings or something. And I wondered if that was kind of the case here, like fruit, especially being really more of a, a luxury and it like, like we would think of candy today almost maybe. Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely a role with that playing. Cause yeah, like you say, they're often kind of a highlight. Sorry, I'm thinking of that scene in um, North and South where, um, I think it's North and South, where someone has apples and it's like, oh, look, I've got some apples. I'm an eligible bachelor. Okay, that's a complete digression. No, no problem. I sadly have not read North and South yet. It's been on my to-be-read to pile for so long. I'm just, it's kind of my shame as a Victorianist. Oh, there's so many. You can never read all of the Victorians. They were so prolific and their novels are so long. Um, so speaking of food... Braden remembers crying about the fact that there were no potatoes when she ate with the maid's family one Sunday. And this is when I really just kind of broke down and said, okay, Braden, we're, we're, we're kindred spirits. You're a girl after my own heart because I love potatoes so much. My husband constantly mocks me for how much I love potatoes. And I've had to really start being conscious of how frequently I cook with them because, I mean, they're good for you, but they're also starch heavy. But so if I could have my way, I would eat potatoes every single day and I do often feel like crying when there are no potatoes. Yes, I've definitely been there and I've definitely been that person going, it's okay because um, I'm eating sweet potatoes, so it's completely different. Right, yes, sweet potatoes, my justification for having fries more more often than I would otherwise. Or you're like, oh, it's mashed potato, which is slightly healthier than fries. Yeah, completely. I baked it this time. I'm being super good. <laughs> um, so even in these early years, which she remembers so fondly, Brennan is already making special mention of her early experiences with the theater. She says she was taken to the St. James to see a performance of Dogs and Monkeys, which I'm not quite sure what that is because it sounds more like a, a circus kind of show to me, but sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine. I feel like that's going to go one of two ways as someone who loves dogs and monkeys, uh, it's either going to be amazing or terrible. But it sounds like it was amazing. Right. Are, are the monkeys... I hope the monkeys were riding the dogs. I, I imagine that, you know, they're both... Both sets of animals are, are trained to do tricks. Yeah. I really wish I could time travel and uh, pop in on this show just to find out and, and share with all of the lovely listeners out there. She recalls 
At the music of the band and the beat of the drums and the lights and wonder of it all, my first theater was too much for me and I burst out crying. Her family thought she was afraid and took her home, but she was overawed and I think this made an impression on her that's really lasting. So this is her first experience with the power of the theater. Yeah, I can see myself crying because um, I'm a bit overwhelmed by that image, but definitely not in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, sometimes if I'm really into a thing, like, I went to the premiere of um, The uh, the Force Awakens a couple years ago. Wow, it's already been a couple years ago. Um, and felt really, kind of, it was an emotional moment. Like, I didn't burst out crying, but, so when you, there is a certain power in um, the combination of the music and the pomp and circumstance of being in the place and also knowing you're about to see something that uh, other people value and, and that um, is supposed to be really cool. That can be a bit overwhelming. And, and the sensory experience of just being in a theater definitely can be exciting in a way that's um, also maybe a little bit terrifying. Like, I wouldn't even blame her if she was sort of afraid at how exciting it all was. Yeah, especially if she's young. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people where arousing music does make me feel very weepy, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm sad or scared. And I'm technically an adult, so... Right, yeah. Yeah. No no shame, little little Braddon. No shame. Um. So on a slightly less cute note, uh, it seems as though her papa wasn't much involved in her early life. He only comes into her memoir on page 23, and this is what, a 120-page memoir, I think, is what I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, about 120 pages, so that's a sixth of the memoir gone by before he even comes into the picture. Um, she describes him as an agreeable gentleman in spotless linen who took snuff out of a silver box and who was associated with brown paper bags of winter fruits, which he would seem to have carried from Covent Garden and with Sunday morning leisure in empty offices and Sunday evening desserts. And she adds, The children of lower classes had fathers and mothers. The tiny house with a drawing room and three servants, the heads of the family were papa and mama. Yeah, so it's interesting because there are a couple of uh, instances earlier in the memoir where she calls her mama mother. And I, I don't know if that was just a drafting error or something she went to go back and fix, or if by 1914 when she's writing this, it was more common to, t to use the term mother, um, and so she was sort of easing modern readers in. Yeah, I kind of thought maybe, because she does, it's kind of hit and miss what she uses, isn't it? And it kind of feels to me like she's forgotten that she said this, and she's pretending that she always called her mama, but she didn't, maybe? Oh, yeah, sort of retroactively, like, classing herself up a little bit. Yeah, because they did have a drawing room and three servants, but... Maybe there wasn't quite this, like, real pressure on being upper class. Yeah, it's hard to know. Yeah, definitely. It's also kind of strange that she switches back and forth if it was more respectful to call her mama. Um, maybe strange, maybe understandable, since she was closer to her mother, so maybe she just felt more comfortable easing in and out of informality with this particular parent. Yeah, because Mama does somehow feel more formal than Mother. Especially in her case. Anyway, 
It sounds like that her papa was a bit of a dandy. She remembers him as whiskered but well-groomed, wearing a blue or perhaps bottle green coat with a suspicion of brass buttons and some kind of buff waistcoat, adding, I know from mama that he was proud of his small foot and arched instep and very particular about his boots. I have even heard him called handsome, but never by mama who said his large brown eyes were like the eyes of oxen. She was not a student of Homer and did not mean this for praise. Sorry, I'm just imagining this very proper Victorian man showing off his small feet and arched insteps. Yeah. It sounds very, very precious of him. Yeah, it's just, there's just something absurd there. I recently was reading something that was also emphasizing, oh, it was on the second Wilkie Collins episode where, um, the main character, who's an artist, was very small but very proud of his smallness, which Wilkie Collins was also very small, but I think not quite as um, pleased with the the size of his hands and feet. Not not as pleased as Brad's papa was, that's for sure. I'm also, um, I'm just struck by the bottle green coat, uh, based on what we know about green clothing in the period, which is, a, it was colored with arsenic, so it's highly toxic to the wearers. And so I'm just terrified by the thought of this green coat. I never even thought about that. I bet he was wearing a uh, hat with some more arsenic in it as well. Explains a lot. <laughs> okay, mark it all down to arsenic poisoning. So at this point in her life, Braddon was fond of her father and felt that he was kind. But he sounds like one of those parents who buys love with gifts and by being super indulgent and not being around enough for the child to ever know their their bad side really right yeah it's like the parent that never has to do the discipline so they don't Mm -hmm. that side never comes into it she says this is a really drastic shift i think i i didn't expect this going in she says papa was nobody's enemy but his own that was what i heard about papa when i was old enough to be told things a good many years after the drawing room in fourth street and this is the first hint we get about the papa problem which drastically changes, I think, the direction of her life and, and, and shapes who she becomes as an adult. Because Papa is pretty shiftless. He's irresponsible with money. He would give charitably to beggars so much that he couldn't pay his own employees. He was rather like Robert Audley at the beginning of Braddon's uh, Lady Audley's Secret, who he's, he's trained as a solicitor but doesn't really practice that much or that well. Um, he's kind of just feckless. Yeah, it seems kind of goes back to what we were just saying, but it seems like he'd deal with people when it would reflect well on him, but the hard conversations go to someone else, usually Braddon's mum. So there's a bit where she says, a man who would give his last five pound note to a hard-up friend, although he had to leave his clerks without wages on Saturday, and to leave his wife to tell them their employer had gone out of town and would not be home till Monday. So, yeah, he is dealing with his friends when it will make him look like a good guy and they'll react really positively and then when it's a difficult conversation Mrs. Bradman has to have that conversation yeah so not just a parroting strategy but a life strategy um so he liked to be thought of as the good guy he liked to be the kind of generous friend but his character flaws go a bit deeper than that apparently at some point around this time Fanny finds out that he was cheating on her now, as you might have suspected based on the oxen eye quote earlier, there wasn't a lot of love lost in this marriage. 
Um, it seems like it was more of a marriage of convenience. Or if they had been in love, it was long ago before two nearly grown children and, and their third maybe um, unexpected baby, their, their late life baby. But the betrayal was enough that Fanny sought a separation, which is a really big deal at this point in time. So at the age of four, Braddon and her mother leave the lovely house and the nurse and the housekeeper and Braddon remembers this journey for its um, weather, mostly. The air was crisp and frosty, it was a bright and cold early morning, and they were taking the high road. They arrived at Mays Hill, St. Leonard's on the sea, and it was February of, I think, 1840 is what we decided on. She's really, since she cuts two years off of her age at the beginning, her dates are all kind of wonky anyway. Um, but she also doesn't keep close track of, of precise years. So 1840-ish. Um, and she's really bored on this journey. It's just her and her mother. And they arrive at a friend's house where they're sort of just taking refuge for a while to till Fanny can get on her feet. And Braddon writes, I fancy that Mrs. Walden must have taken Mama in hand after Papa vanished from our lives by an amicable separation. There was no divorce court open to people of small means in those days, and the best thing man and wife could do when the marriage vow had been broken, and circumstances financial and otherwise had made home life impossible, was to part company without fuss or unkindness. I know Mamma went through the rest of her years without an evil feeling about the husband she had never loved, and that in their occasional meetings they met without any spurt of anger, met, one might say, as friends. So this might be a good time to taken aside and talk about changes in divorce law and legislation about women through the century because they're at play here and Braddon will see them change drastically in the course of her life. So in 1839, the Child Custody Act allowed women to petition for custody of children under seven. Before that, if for any reason husband and wife split up, the husband automatically got custody of infants. In 1848, Queen's College in London was established for women who intended to teach. In 1852, the women's suffrage petition was presented to the House of Lords but rejected. That's super early though, I'm really impressed with that. Yeah, I didn't realize it was. I knew like in the 80s and 90s there was a lot of um, commotion going on, a lot of awareness raising, but I, I hadn't realized it was happening in the 50s, so that's really cool. Um, in 1857, the Matrimonial Causes Act allowed divorce through law courts instead of requiring a private act of parliament. Yes, you heard that right. Prior to 1857, divorce required a private act of parliament, which just sounds insane. But even at this point, even with this breakthrough, there were still some hurdles to be got over. So a husband had to prove his wife's adultery if he wanted a divorce, but a wife had to prove her husband's adultery plus incest, bigamy, cruelty, or desertion. So she had an added burden of proof. Now, a lot of people manufactured this evidence, especially if both people wanted to get out of the marriage. But if it was a sort of desperate situation and the wife wanted out and the husband didn't, this made it all the more difficult for her. In 1867, the first debate in Parliament on women's suffrage occurred. John Stuart Mill tried but failed to amend the reform bill to grant women the vote. 
He was defeated 196 to 73. Also in 1867, the National Society for Women's Suffrage was founded. In 1869, John Stuart Mill published The Subjection of Women, which is a treatise on the state of being a woman at this time, and also kind of his thoughts on how women should be treated and how society should change to treat them better. That's like the, the, the dummies version of John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Uh, in 1870, the Married Women's Property Act gives women full rights over inheritances and money earned after marriage. Property in her name, or property which was in her name before her marriage, still belongs to the husband, though. In 1871, women won the right to vote in municipal elections. But I think that it was maybe only um, women of a certain age, if I'm remembering right. Uh, so women who are 30 or older. I may be wrong about that. I'll do some digging and uh, post any corrections in the show notes. In 1882, the second Married Women's Property Act gave women ownership over all property acquired by their own efforts. In 1885, the age of consent for girls was raised from 13 to 16. In 1893, the third Married Women's Property Act gave women control of all their own property. And in 1898, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies was formed. I think it wasn't until um, 1928 that full suffrage was achieved in Britain. Does that sound right? Um, I think it's 1921 or 2 that married women over 30 get suffrage. And I think I think it was 28 then that, that it was extended to more women, maybe. Anyway, something in the 1920s. So Braddon did not live to see full suffrage, but she would have been well aware of these movements, especially as they amped up at the end of the century. Yeah, it was 1918. 1918, wow, okay. Yeah, definitely after she's, uh, she's passed away. Okay, so with that aside... Now you have the information to sort of know what's happening in the background with, with regard to the legal status of women and their lives and livelihoods. And this is a good place to take a break. When we get back, we'll find out what happens next in Braddon's childhood. So not long after this huge transition in her young life, little Mary started learning the alphabet, a slippery slope that would lead to poetry and novel writing and international fame. But we'll get to that in due time. For now, four-ish year old Braddon imagines Mrs. Walden lecturing her mother about motherly negligence, choosing, quote, such a person to look after her child and demanding, quote, what authority could you exercise over such a person? Little Mary could not have been in worse hands, four years old and not able to read. So apparently Braddon is trying to, to understand why so, um, so close on the heels of this traumatic move in her life, she is forced to start learning the alphabet and she, she blames Mrs. Walden, taking her mother to task for letting her stay in the company of 
Sarah Allen, her nurse, for so long and not actually start learning. At least that's the sense I got. Of this introduction to learning, she remarks, After the reading task came the writing with a pen, which the child slave is made to hold in that irksome position in which I believe no free grown-up ever holds it. Then I began to wallow in ink, strokes and pothooks and hangers, the treadmill of infants, the long and weary climbing stairs that seemed to lead nowhere. I thought this was just such an evocative description of learning how to write. And she would have been learning how to write with uh, nib pens, which are are pretty difficult. I've tried a time or two. I'm just kind of bad with drawing and pen work in general, but to have to learn how to write with something like that instead of our lovely, easy ballpoint pens or a fountain pen just seems really intimidating. Yeah, I know plenty of adults who struggle with them. Yeah, so a treadmill of infants, yeah. It's also interesting that she so clearly recalls this, because I think a lot of a lot of people talk about the earliest memories, and they're not usually, I mean, four, maybe you have some memories, but she recalls in such clear detail, and recalls the whole process of learning how to read. I don't have a memory of learning how to read, but my parents tell me I was already reading by the time I was four, and I think one of my earliest memories is reading Dr. Seuss's The Footbook. I don't really remember not knowing how to read at all. How about you? No, like you say, I, I can't remember ever not knowing how to read. This is one of the things about Before Knowledge of Evil that's kind of amazing. And she says at some point that she has a really poor memory and then writes 180 or something pages about her life up to nine. I feel like if I were to write a memoir, I might not manage 180 something pages about my life up to 25. Like, she clearly doesn't have a good memory or a good imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was reading before for as a kind of favourite family story of me running around when I was much younger bothering any older person I could find to read a book called Burglar Bill, which I would say Bogglable, which apparently was very endearing. That sounds really cute. Yeah, I've, I've heard um, people who study this kind of thing say, though, that our memories of early life are a lot more enduring than recent memories. So it's possible to remember vividly days from your childhood and like not remember what you had for breakfast the day before, and that that's a really common phenomenon. So maybe that's what's going on. Yeah, it could well be that kind of like once you start thinking about it, it's a lot easier to remember things. But it doesn't seem amazing to me. So after she begins learning how to read and write, Braddon and her mother move out of Miss Walden's into another house somewhere not quite in the country, sort of like on the edge of the country. Um, But it has a garden, which she's really excited about. They're not there very long, though. This is a pattern. We're going to talk about so many moves today. So not long after they move out of Mrs. Walden's, they pick up and move again, and this time Sarah Allen is with them, uh, and they move to Half Moon Street in Mayfair. And now Braddon's walks resume, her daily walks with Sarah Allen, but instead of prowling around in Soho, they're now in Piccadilly and Green Park. And then she remembers coming down with the measles or something major like that. Uh, It sounds kind of like the measles because she remembers blisters that hurt badly. And Sarah Allen is blamed and dismissed. I'm so sorry for Sarah throughout this. Yeah. Is this a- does she ever come back or is this the last time we see Sarah? I want to say this is the last time we see her. I think so, yeah. Well, we wish you well, Sarah Allen, in whatever 
whatever course your life took after this. Hopefully, hopefully it gets better. I would love to read that neo-Victorian novel about Sarah Allen's life. Yes. Any aspiring new Victorian novelists, tell us what happens to Sarah Allen, please. That's a request. Yes. Okay, so then Mama and little Mary move again. Surprise, surprise. Uh, this time somewhere between the Strand and the river. And this is the first time we really hear about Broaden's brother, Edward, coming to visit. But this Christmas he comes to visit and tells her a story about demons in a mine, which is such an odd thing to remember but also really fitting for someone who goes on to write sensation fiction. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, this seems very classic older brother to me, because I have a brother who's five or six years older than me, and I can always remember him telling me the story about how there was a, a Dutchman buried beneath the floorboards of my bedroom for some reason. Gosh. Once again, I'm related to Brandon. Yeah. I mean, I, now that I think of it, I had uh, an uncle who's three years older than me, and I remember when I was five, he told me that there was a panel on the wall where they, the water heater spot, where it was covered up, and he said there were zombies back there, and if I knocked three times in that room, it would come out and eat me. So, yeah, it does seem very boy-relative-ish of him, yeah. But yeah, like, yeah, it's very interesting that she... You know, she runs that story so uh, like vividly and then goes on to write sensation fiction. She was just sopping it all up and nobody thought like it would make a big difference at all. <laughs> so then they move again to Kensington within earshot of that old Kensington church which Lady Ritchie has made so famous in a house on the hill in or near Church Street. There she started attending school at Scarsdale House where her sister Maggie still attended apparently which seems like a really long time for Maggie to be in school if she's 11 years older. Yeah, I don't think many people stayed at school past about 14, so it sounds like she's, I don't know, maybe this is Braddon misremembering it, yeah. Maybe. Or maybe Maggie was, um, like, apprenticing there or being, um, like, training to teach or something? Yeah, it could be. Definitely could be the case. Yeah, it's the only thing I could think, like, when, when Jane Eyre stays on at Lowood, after she's done with her learning there. I don't know. But, I mean, there there's a class difference, so I don't know if that really makes sense. But Anyway, so we get kind of a jumble of random memories. When she's at school, she remembers making daisy chains in the garden. She remembers that the school had a stunning 18th century staircase, which she says it like it's so old, and I guess to a, a child it was, but it wasn't that old in the 19th century. She remembers the ballroom there and her first dancing lesson, but doesn't really say much about it. There was a parrot that hung out on a perch in the front windows of the school. She describes her headmistress, Mrs. Pitt, as a woman clad in black samite. The school served lots of radishes and thick bread and butter, which she was not pleased with. I, I can understand why. It's an odd combo. It's a really weird choice. I mean, I'm pretty sure radishes do grow in this country, but so do plenty of other more obvious vegetables. And were they slicing up these radishes and putting them on the bread or stewing them or something? Because I I remember reading that Victorians did not believe in eating raw vegetables. Yeah, I'm kind of imagining a radish sandwich, but even weirder. Yeah. A cucumber sandwich makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Just need some cheese Um, This is really relatable. So she remembers struggling with a multiplication table. 
Math doesn't appear to have been her favorite thing in the world. Uh, but she only stayed at this school for about half a year, and around the time she's, she leaves, there's a fancy ball with tableau, and she was dressed as a Dutch broom girl. She's really excited about, and she talks about the costume, and so this is it's kind of her first time acting at all, even though really she's just dressing up. It, yeah, it's her first kind of experience of being a public figure. Mm-hmm. So... Auspicious moment, even though it's sort of a small and subtle one. <laughs> yeah, get the taste for it. Yes. So then, before she really knows what's happening, she's on the railway to Southampton, going to Grandmama's, so Grandma Braddon's house in Cornwall, and she quickly becomes friends with all of the servants there, as was her sister Maggie. I really love her, and that she's friends with servants. You can kind of imagine some children in this period, sticking their nose up, but she's just making friends with servants left and right. Yes, yeah. Hanging out in the kitchens a lot, I would imagine, which is really self-serving given how much she loves food, but maybe she's just endearing herself to all of the all of the servants as they hang out in the kitchens and benefiting from the snacks they give her. So much like a modern child, she quickly grows weary of the journey, even though she's on a brand new railroad. At the time, they weren't that, I mean, they were kind of getting established, I guess, but it's still pretty new, pretty exciting. Um, When they transfer from a railway to a coach, she asks, does Grandmama live here of every dwelling she sees? I can just imagine it. How about this house? How about this house? Is this Grandmama's house? Her grandmama's house was named Skisden. It takes them quite a long time to get there, but when they do, she quickly meets a series of uncles. So her father's eldest brother, who's also a solicitor, an old-fashioned family solicitor good at marriage settlements and conveyancing, but a squire to boot, with farms and tenants of his own, and above all, a sportsman. His name is John Braddon. He's a friend of the editor of the Saturday Review, so years later, when Braddon's first two novels are published, they don't get torn apart by a journal which everyone dreaded. Uh, so it's all who you know, I guess. Lucky little writer. <laughs> and around the time she turns six or seven, it's hard to tell, once again, because she's playing fast and loose with the dates, she remembers a visitor coming and talking to them all about mesmerism and then trying to mesmerize her but the, the visitor fails, to, and Braddon isn't sure whether whether it's because she was too stupid to, or she was just impervious. Like, if she was just, she didn't get the point of it, and so it didn't work on her, or if she is one of the rare people who can't be hypnotized. And she, she suspects that her mother and aunt think it's because she's just too dumb to know what's going on. I'm really sorry for that. It is literally what you're saying, that she doesn't, it's all about susceptibility, right? So because she's not susceptible, she's just it's just not working. But not in a she's stupid way, in a she's almost smarter than the adults because of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she's not going to go along with it because she thinks it's what the adults want. Which, yeah, I really admire about her. Yeah, she's really um, she's really strong-minded in in the best sense i think she she knows what's going on even though people aren't always telling her things and so i, I think it, it just makes sense that she's not easily uh, affected her aunt mary after whom i assume she was named also lived at grandmama's house and uh, exhibited a love of books in shakespeare that braddon found admirable and enticing and i think maybe even uh 
something she wanted to imitate or something she wanted to be like when she grew up. So she also told stories about the county people of Devonshire and shared little superstitions that the local people held. Grandmama herself apparently believed in witches, and Braddon recalls that she paid one to charm her sister's eyes, affected with some passing weakness. The eyes recovered soon after, and Braddon says, I suppose the local witch had the credit of the cure. So even now, I mean, writing back with hindsight, she clearly doesn't believe that there was really anything to it, but that luckily enough for this witch, her sister did recover soon thereafter. That kind of helped to uh, restore the sister's eyesight. Yeah. So Fanny and little Mary are off again, this time to visit Aunt Sarah Cowland. Her house is named Campbellhay, and she insisted on being called Aunt Cowland, not Aunt Sarah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's another strange, very formal move. Yeah. Um, her uncle Cowland, vicar of the parish there, quickly became a particular favorite of hers, though. And, bonus, her aunt had stepdaughters, Harriet and Maggie, and Mary, Braddon, and Maggie quickly become BFFs. So glad she finally has a child friend. Finally, and how old is she now? Like, six, seven? Yeah, something in that? Somewhere in that region. Yeah, and this visit to her grandmother's was very long. Yeah, I feel like she's anywhere between six and, like, eight or nine. Yeah. So that visit's kind of a whirlwind, and back at Grandmama's, Uncle William and his two daughters, Mariah and Annie, have arrived. Uncle William has been living for over 30 years in Bengal, and she referred to him as her Anglo-Indian uncle. Um, at this time in her life, she's really super fond of uncles. I mean, they're clearly substitute father. Uh, figures for her um, and she comments often about how lucky she was and how happy she was that all her uncles were amazing oh no i was gonna say kind of makes up for her dad um and she was <laughs> nobody's enemy but oh, no his own enemy that's what she calls him isn't it his own enemy yeah maybe calling him that sort of shows that she felt sorry for him a little bit. Like, he could have had this amazing life, but he just kept messing it up for himself. And she seems to recognize that, at least when she's 79. Yeah. Takes two years. So we're not quite sure how long this visit to Grandmama was, but she was there for quite a while, as I mentioned a minute or so ago. Um, and then the visit is sort of abruptly over, and they are off homeward. Though, strictly speaking, they don't quite have a home. Fanny has to find a new place for them to live. This is not the last time that Braddon would visit, by any means, though it's probably the last time we'll really talk about Skisden or the people there. Um, but years later, she inherited the property and loved it, but was also very happy to pass it on to her cousin, an East Indian merchant, for his son's marriage settlement. So back on their own... Fanny and Braddon move into, quote, a pretty little inconvenient house in the Vale of Health at Hampstead while looking for a more permanent house. This was winter 1842 or 1843-ish, as near as I can tell, and pretty soon thereafter, Fanny hires a governess named Miss Parrot to teach Braddon and to chaperone Maggie. Uh, so while they were there, 
a fateful meeting occurred. The landlord's four daughters, the Miss Greens, came to tea. And they're all much older than her, but apparently they became fast friends and Broden kept in touch with them throughout her life. Though we won't really have much occasion to talk about them after this, just because they're kind of background friends from what I can tell. But these are some of her earliest friends besides her cousin Maggie. Now the Greens make me think of, I don't know, I guess maybe like they're ahead of their time. They're almost new woman-ish, maybe more like kissing odd women. But um, so Braden writes, they had been educated upon peculiar lines by a somewhat eccentric father who had given his four daughters a tutor instead of a governess, a tutor, I believe, of no mean powers, and it may be said that they had enjoyed exceptional advantages in a period when there was no Harley Street, no Gurdon, no Newnham, no South Kensington or Guildhall, for art and music, nothing but a Scarsdale house for a school or a Miss Parrot at home. Yeah, I that. Yeah. They just sound amazing. I want them to be my friends. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of jealous that I got to be friends with them. Yeah. Although I think this statement's a little bit misleading, given the second, um, so she writes, of the tutor, that he had not produced that unpleasant type of woman known as strong-minded, but he had imbued one or two of them with democratic opinions and a dislike of the privileged classes from the queen downwards. So it's kind of unclear whether they are these really well-educated, opinionated women who we get in that first quote, or if they're just sort of eccentric like their father, but pretty much socially normal. Or maybe in this second, she's just trying not to reflect poorly on them by social standards, if that makes sense. Yeah, I kind of read that as, like, defensive and saying, oh, they're not, um, I can't think what the word is, but like, oh, they're not nags or, like, strong women that think they're better than you or have one describes Francisco Trollope as having a masculine intellect, which is implicitly bad. So I think I read that kind of defensively, saying, oh, they're still ladies. Yeah, yeah, she's just trying to maybe stave off criticisms. Yeah. So they live for about a year in the Vale of Health, making trips to London to the theatre and Piccadilly. So of the many moves and trips and visits she took during this time in her life, Braddon notes, quote, novelty, a strange house, different cups and saucers and teapot, perhaps some kind of cake that was new, all went to make a treat. So she's really, her lifestyle, her, her frequent moves and her lifestyle with her mother has tended to make her pretty adventurous and to like traveling. And as somebody who moved a lot as a kid, I really get where she's coming from with this quote. There's something about the headlights on the open road at night that calls to me. My granddad called this a wanderlust, and I think Braden definitely had it. Yeah, it's a really kind of romantic image, isn't it? Maybe it's the food that made her comfortable enough to do it, because it seems like it could go one of two ways if you're moving a lot. One, that you just get so tired of moving around and really want to cling to something that's familiar and, like, root down in a place, or that you really embrace it, and, and she seems to have really embraced it. Yeah, I know it helps when I'm on a journey, and I know there's going to be cake at the end. <laughs> cake, yeah. I prefer pie, but any sort of baked good will work for me. Yeah, I won't say no to pie. So it's winter again. They seem to move a lot in winter, which is weird... Because it seems like these days most people move in summer. But so they moved to a house that Braden called the Terrace after a notable painter who had lived there. The governess did not come with them though. 
so I think Braddon's sort of at loose ends again. But Fanny wanted to move to London so that Edward would be more likely to stay with her than with his father on school holidays. So again, um, Braddon's papa is kind of like the, the cool parent. He indulges his children, he gives them gifts, and he sort of seems to have won Edward's affection that way. So Fanny's sort of playing that game just so she can get some time with her son. So brother Edward was apparently really fond of cats as a boy and carried one about with him in his waistcoat. Yeah, I'm so jealous of his apparently huge pockets. Like, I can just about tip my phone with pictures of my brother-in-law's cat into my pockets and a squeeze of time. <laughs> yeah, I, um, last year I think I decided to only buy clothes that have functional pockets, but nothing even comes close to big enough to hold a cat. Um, so this new house they moved to is on the banks of the Thames and had a small garden. There, Braddon had her first real day-to-day friends who were about her age. Charlotte, called Charlie, who was two years younger than her, and Mary, called Polly, who was one year younger than Charlotte, but nevertheless a valued playmate. They were next-door neighbors. They also had some brothers who Braddon describes as overall vaguely annoying. I feel like even though up until this point most of her friends have been older, she's the kind of kid that would really like thrive from having younger friends. Yeah. I mean, even later in life, she's very, very social, so this must have been a great time for her. Um, Edward's godfather came to visit that Christmas. Braddon apparently just thought of him as her godfather, too. Anyway, he came and he told lots of stories about his life and adventures and things he'd read about. And Braddon remembers him talking about people in the madhouse, noting that, quote, For her, playing quietly in the corner, the stories were only words and made no difference. Which I don't think is actually the case, given the nature of her career. <laughs> All of these stories about the madhouse must have planted a seed somewhere because so many of her characters go mad. <laughs> yeah, there's something, there's something in there. So between the ages of eight and nine, Braddon began to suffer from insomnia that sounds like it was a lifelong complaint. She notes, quote, Mama bade me sleep as if slumber were within the compass of human will, but it is not. How many miserable hours, how much weary reiteration of painful thoughts and unhappy memories might be spared mankind if one could sleep without the drowsy syrups of the East, without Veronal. But I knew too, by experience, before I was nine years old, that one cannot, and the knowledge that Mama would reappear at eleven o'clock and be very disappointed and almost angry at finding me wide awake helped keep me so. This began one of the troubles of my life, the frequent loss of that gentle thing beloved from pole to pole. Uh, so if you're curious, I looked up Veronal, and it is a patent medicine that comes out uh, early in the 20th century, and it's just a barbiturate, really. But it seems like she was very familiar with it in her adult life, so I think it, yeah, it would have really helped knock you out a couple of times, but I I imagine it would have lost its efficacy pretty fast, too, so... Yeah, it doesn't sound like something you want to be taking every night. No. I mean, but the Victorians were people who were popping laudanum. Yeah. Like breath mints, so... <sighs> yeah, so this is another moment where I really had a lot of... Um, I really related to Brad in here because insomnia is so hard. And no matter how much you tell yourself to go to sleep or no matter... How much you want to go to sleep and no matter how much you are exhausted sometimes just sleep won't come 
So I really feel her pain here. Yeah, I'm completely there with both of you. Like, my sister is as soon as her head hits the pillow, and I once asked her how she does it, basically. And she's like, oh, just clear your mind. Don't think anything, or only think about sleep. And my reaction was basically the same as Brandon's, where I'm like, that, that isn't possible. Yeah, if it, if it were only that easy. Maybe we need to look into Veridol. <laughs> See if we can find some in, a, in an antique shop somewhere. <laughs> Braden recalls writing her first story at a desk her brother's godfather gave her that Christmas. She calls it a pale copy of one of those old fairy tales that were deeply imprinted upon my brain. And that's really interesting. I think most writers begin by copying. One of my first serious attempts to write was basically a reimagination of the Chronicles of Narnia. So, and I, I shudder to think of how bad it must have been. <laughs> Yeah, I can't remember the names of the books I tried to copy when I was younger, but just classic YA fiction, just trying to copy that really badly. I mean, but it's a necessary step, I think. Just trying to learn the rules somehow, or like the shape of a story, even if you don't consciously realize that's what you're doing. So not long after this, Braddon began attending Miss Rosalind's Day School in Black Lion Lane, where she studied maths and arts and crafts and little bits of grammar and geography. There, she also had her first music lessons. But, so it's not clear how long she was there, but eventually her mama takes over her education and begins to give her lessons. And she recalls, quote, I had no dry-as-dust lessons to learn by rote, but I had to write a good deal. Little bits of history, geography, a good deal of French from dictation, always in a bold round hand. Nothing less than round hand was permitted, and my... Dictates filled a goodly pile of exercise books in the course of my studies. Mama, who wrote a fine and distinctive hand and never used a steel pen, had no admiration for the delicate pointed penmanship of the average young lady, and kept me severely to my double-line copybooks. So if you think back to episode one, where we talk about Wilkie Collins' life, this um, picture of Braddon's education is starkly different from Collins'. Um, and Fanny's methods make a lot more sense than those employed by Collins' professors. So, because we remember things we write by hand a lot longer than we do via other methods. So even if Braddon didn't understand all of her lessons during this time, the fact that she had to write it all out gave her a much better chance of uh, the information lodging in her memory. And she also notes that the only things that she had to learn uh, had to memorize were long passages from Shakespeare and other notable literary works. Yeah, it's really interesting that um, Fanny at home is, seems to be doing a better job of teaching than Collins's tutors. Right. I mean, and even um, we don't hear much about Collins's mother, her methods, because she was a trained governess, so she. And she was teaching him for quite a while, at least before he went to boarding school. So I wonder what her methods were like and how they would compare to Fanny's. It's hard to say. When she was eight-ish, she met novelist Mariah Edgeworth, of whom she was a great fan. And that year, she also got a lot of books for her birthday and recalls reading Martin Chuzzlewit, though not quite understanding it, which... I think I probably read Martin Chuzzlewit when I was 18 and had a similar reaction. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, as an eight-year-old, I was reading a lot of adult fiction, too, but I probably understood, like, none of it. Um, anything I've reread as an adult has been 
eye-opening, to say the least. Like, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and... Completely different stories. Yeah. Completely different stories as an adult, yeah. So at the age of nine, Braddon went to boarding school at Dartmouth Lodge, rooming with a girl whose name was also Fanny, uh, like her mother. And that's all we really know about her childhood. I mean, there are lots more details in her memoir, um, but that's sort of the arc of her her early childhood. Um, She writes, When I think of those years on the terrace, and the little of sorrow that I knew in them, sheltered and fenced round with love, I can but wonder if I was ever grateful enough to the power that ruled by unthinking life and gave me so much of good. So with those pretentious words, I think it's a good time for another break, and when we get back, we'll find out what sorrows she might have faced as a young adult. So, in 1847, at the age of 12, Braddon and her family move out of the Terrace House. But this move was just a bit more momentous than we might expect, given how often they moved, because the Terrace was the last time Braddon would really live with her brother, even if it had only been on holidays up until this point. And this is the last time we'll really talk about him until the very end. Um, So we'll send him off like they do at the end of books and some movies with an epilogue. Edward... 17 or 18 at the time, goes to India with their older cousin William to work in the family mercantile business. Um, One of his aunts pays him an allowance to make sure he's taken care of, but sends it through Papa, so who knows how much he actually got. Not long after, he decided to go into the Indian civil service, where he made his career. That's more interesting life. He married young and had five children. His first wife's name was Georgiana, but she went by Georgie. She died, and he remarried, and I don't recall seeing his second wife's name anywhere. Did you read it anywhere, Eleanor? I've not seen her name. Just Mrs. Braddon. (laughs) It's so rare to find the names of wives and sisters and mothers in history, especially if they're not the subject of whatever writing is going on. Um, So it's not unsurprising that we don't know his second wife's name. Um, anyways, after he remarries, he... Oh, wait, we do know. Sorry. Um, his second wife's name is Alice. Oh. Which I read at the end of my research, my last research session, and must have blocked it out. So, Alice, um, whose maiden name I don't know, um, but Alice Braddon, um, they moved to Tasmania in 1878, where Edward eventually becomes prime minister and he keeps in touch with letters and occasional visits. I love that, like, most people in their retirement move somewhere warm and then, like, play golf or whatever, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to move somewhere warm, but I'm going to become prime minister. Right. <laughs> Take on more responsibility! Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the kind of um, elderly person I'll be, actually, which is, I, I don't know if I feel, like, really good about that or slightly just exhausted thinking that far ahead. Where will you be Prime Minister of? Oh gosh. (laughs) Uh, I I hadn't thought that far ahead. I'll have to consider that. Yeah. 
I've got around. Anyway, while we're epilogging siblings, let's talk about Maggie. We know slightly less about her adult life. She stuck around at least for a few more years, but in the 50s at some point, she married an Italian named Antonio Cardigoni, I think? I'm butchering in all languages today, butchering names in all languages. Um, and they moved to Naples, probably in uh, the mid to late 50s. They had one son, Nicolino. Um, but before she married and moved away, she, her mother, and preteen Mary moved one more time in or around 1848. This time to Camberwell, south of Thames. If Braddon's autobiographical fiction is reliable, then about this time in their lives, the Braddon women were living on roughly 150 pounds a year. So that translates to about uh, $17,697 in U.S. currency in 2017, or almost 14,000 pounds, 13,500 pounds, which is right about at the poverty line by modern standards, though many people did live on 100 pounds or less a year in Victorian England. Well, um, yeah, scholarships in this country generally are 14,000 pounds, so that's what your average PhD student is on. Okay, yeah, that's about, I, I actually make about $2,000 less than, than they were making a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so PhD students, poverty level, you know, the, yeah. We're in the same boat as you, Brad and women. <laughs> so Brad and all this time has been writing fiction um, to varied success. She's imitating fairy tales at first. She keeps up the habit with each su successive move. At this point in her life, she's being a little bit more ambitious and starting to model her work on novels like Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. We know this based on her papers that were left behind, but after this, about 10 years go by where we don't know much about her day-to-day -day life. And since we've still got quite a lot of ground left to cover, and this is a good natural breaking point, we will quit now and be back soon with the second half of Mary Elizabeth Braddon's long and fascinating life. After the ball, done by Mr. George J. Gaskin. A little maiden climbed an old man's feet, and for his glory to watch his sleep. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? I had a sweetheart years, years ago. Where she is now, and you will soon go. Listen to the story, I'll tell it all. I believe her life lives. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to the Victorian Scribblers Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. That's www.patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. There you can find all the latest updates about the podcast, most recent episodes, exclusive content, and links to all of the social media pages. You can also drop me a line at victorianscribblers at outlook.com. 
I'll look forward to hearing from you. Bye. Music for this podcast, courtesy of MuseOpen, www.museopen.org.